You've eaten Gotham's wealth, its spirit, but your feast is nearly over. This is not my hole. It's an operating table. And I'm the surgeon. Why aren't you laughing? From this moment on, none of you are safe. Welcome to the Batman Book Club, a podcast that explores the Dark Knight Library. I am your host, Ryan Lauer. Like and follow the Batman Book Club on Twitter at TheBatmanBC to get up to date on new episodes, upcoming episodes, and even some giveaways and some bat polls. Those are pretty fun. You can also follow me on Twitter at Lauer underscore Ryan, Lauer spelled like lower. The Batman Book Club is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Network hosted by BatmanOnFilm.com. And finally, please, if you can, take 30 seconds out of your day to rate and review the show. The link to Apple Podcasts Rate and Reviews is in the description of the show. And the more reviews we have, it'll help spread the word. And the word is panic. Now, for this episode, I am very excited because we are talking about a cherished story. A very cherished story that I did not choose. No, my guest, he chose it. He had a little trouble narrowing down to this one or a couple other ones. I think I might have persuaded him toward this one because I really like this one. I wanted to revisit it. You saw the title. It is Batman Year Three. And my guest is Javi Truio. Javi, hello. Hi. How are you doing, Ryan? I am doing fantastic. Thank you so much for, for being on. We were just talking about how it's good. It's always fun, always good to just uh, voice conversation in a day of Twitter and emails and texting and you and I have, we have crossed paths many times on Twitter. Also, both of us write for Batman on film. That we uh, do. Why don't you, why don't you give a little backstory about what you cover on Batman on film? Uh, well, I started off covering a few um, Batman 80 events in uh, Austin, Texas. We had mm-hmm. a uh, long live the bat. Uh, just kind of like a party where they, they DC brought people to uh, the Bat Bridge. We have a bridge in Austin off of South Congress, uh, just right at the Colorado River, south of downtown. And it's the largest urban bat colony. It's like over a million bats that live under this bridge. Wow. So at, at sunset, when they're in town, um, they all fly out to go find their food for the night so dc had set it up they had all these like glasses and and uh banners and everything and they did a a drone shot for dc daily um r.i.p dc daily and uh so when the bats yeah i know (laughs) way too soon when the bats flew out at night they they had a bat signal that they were shining um on the water and it was just like a, a really cool moment so i i covered that uh, for Batman on film. And then they also had a, an art gallery as well, where they featured, um, they'd done these big, big blowups of specific covers, uh, throughout Batman's 80 year history of like landmarks. Uh, so I got to attend that Mondo put it on at their gallery, uh, and actually wound up purchasing a Darwin cook variant cover, um, from one of the new 52 issues, not the one where he's, uh, being tucked in by Alfred, but it's it's a little Batman in the corner, and he's just inundated by all his villains, and it's just 
it's just an awesome, awesome piece and it's huge. So I, I made that purchase. Uh, and then from there, um, I started covering Red Hood and the Outlaws. Mm-hmm. And that morphed into uh, the Batman's Grave and also now Batman the Adventures Continue. Uh, so I've got, I've got like three issues left of the Batman's Grave before that's over and two more chapters, I think, for the Batman uh, the Adventures Continue. So the Batman's Batman's Grave, I started off reading it and then I ended up getting behind to where now I'm just like, I think I'm just going to wait and blind buy uh, the trade whenever that comes out. Yeah, my, you know, my, like, eh. yeah, my best friend Eric is in the, the same boat. I think he made it almost to the break and then missed like issue six. And then he just kind of fell off. He's like, oh, I'm going to trade weight. Like he's he's content enough that, you know, the story's been good thus far. So he'll just wait then. But they, they did have that natural break in the story where they're taking two months off. And then, of course, Corona happened. So it uh, kind of worked out, maybe. <laughs> but it's if back. there was ever a positive yeah. in uh 2020 i guess that's it you know yeah uh, uh you also dabble outside of batman i see in both the webhead spider-man's universe as well as the one and only bond james bond that that is correct yeah i've done a <laughs> lot of spider-man stuff i've done a lot of uh, articles for the spider-man crawl space and done some podcasting with them and uh, I've also done a few uh, James Bond comic reviews for the jamesbonddossier.com. And uh, lately I've done or I've been on uh, two YouTube videos for the Bond experience as part of some of the big social events he's planned online that I got to be a guest on. That was really, really awesome. I mean, when is it not awesome to talk about things that you love with people that love it, too? I know. So I have yet to run into a problem yet of somebody picks uh, something that I absolutely do not like. Okay. I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm an optimist. So I think I'll find something <laughs> positive in anything. And especially when it's Batman. Uh, so this, but so far all these episodes into this show and all of them have been good picks. So it's just, you choosing Batman year three is another good pick. And it's, it's somewhat of a relief of kind of like, Oh, thank God. Yes. We haven't covered that yet. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. (laughs) So before we get into talking about that, let me ask you what I ask everybody. Javi, what is your favorite Batman story? The problem with Batman is there are so many to choose from (laughs) that. It's hard to pick like just one definitive story. So there's, there's a long Halloween, there's the Dark Knight. Those are like the evergreens that mm-hmm. that everyone kind of gravitates towards. I'm a big fan of. Um, it took me a minute to get there, but I'm a big fan of Grant Morrison's Batman. Uh, it came at a at a specific time in my life, and I really liked um, the tenacity uh, that Batman had in R.I.P. and his unwillingness to give up. Um, but there's one comic that that will always have a special place in my heart and it's not a it's not a big key issue it's not going to blow anyone out of the water maybe uh, because it's it's a very quiet story but it's so well done um 1989 i'm 11 years old going on 12 and uh, my sister was a girl scout and she had to sell girl scout cookies at the grocery store and uh my mom wouldn't let me stay home because i was too young in her opinion but I was really bored hanging out with all these Girl Scouts 
Uh, and back in the day, once upon a time in the 20th century, grocery stores had magazine aisles. And in these magazine aisles, they had this thing called comic books. <laughs> so I went to go hang out at the comic books and uh, was thumbing through everything. And I'd, I'd been a Batman fan as far, long as I could remember. I remember my first Spider-Man comic that I read, but I don't remember my first Batman comic. And my dad wasn't very rarely did he get me an issue that was new on the stands. He would go to a used bookstore and he would go through the back issues and get me stuff that he was more familiar with. So I grew up reading a lot of like reprints or fifties and sixties Batman. Cause that's what he loved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there on the, on the spinner rack was Batman 432. And I was just transfixed. I, I knew the movie was coming out. I knew it was coming out on my birthday um, which was a, like a big deal to me because I, I, I love Batman. And, but I hadn't seen Batman like this, like just from the first splash page, it's Jim Aparo and it's, just, it's magnificent. It's, it's Batman coming in through a window at an office at night and he's just covered in shadows. And it's just this dark moody story about a PI who's looking for a missing child that's been missing for years. And I didn't quite somehow I grasped the concept of what was going on, even though I hadn't read anything prior. Like I hadn't read death in the family. And this is just a few issues after that. So he's still trying and failing to deal with the loss of Jason, but the storytelling was so good that I got what the emotion was and I was just hooked. And as you go through the comic, there's an ad um, for how it's Batman's 50th birthday and had these big issues uh, planned. Uh, these big storylines, and I think they even mentioned that the, the movie's coming out. Um, so I was just I was on board, and while I'd been collecting comics my whole life, I would I would read them, I would just stack them up in my room. They would get ripped up. Um, I would just read them to pieces. But Batman forty four thirty two was the first comic that I took care of. Like I understood this was something important. And like from that point on, I, I, I consider it the start of my comic book collection. I had a lot of comic books before then. Uh, not really many of them survived, but like to me, that was my start. And and I've been avidly following the Dark Knight's adventures ever since. Nice. That's a I've never read that one for some reason. That's a paro like, oh. Uh. Oh, it's so uh, good. He was my intro. He so, so I always mention Ray Fogel is my uh was my impression of Batman growing up, like my my introduction. But Aparo was right there too because they were kind of you know concurrent at the same time, depending on what yeah. you're looking at and overlapping and stuff. And yeah, I'm I mean I'm looking at it right now, and I read Death of the Death in the Family, and I read Year Three, and I missed the few issues in between. But I guess it's just because, I mean, the other one, I don't know, I don't know how I missed them. But ah, oh, cool. Now I've got to put that on the list. Yeah, I got to read it like right away. All right, let's hit pause. I'll go read it. We can come back and talk about that a little bit before we get into year three. Uh, very cool, and I, I like a I like a unique pick. I mean, I I go mainstream of the long Halloween, and there's nothing wrong with that. Or Dark Knight yeah. Returns, year one, all that and everything. But I, I can really appreciate when it's a, a first of all a single issue of something, and then also something that I've never read before. So. Very cool, Javi. I like it. It's a good pick. 
so yeah, as you mentioned, this was a few issues after Death in the Family, where, spoiler alert, that Jason Todd, the second Robin, was killed, blown to bits. It was very traumatic for all of a nerddom in the DC Comics world. And about a year later, we have a a story called Batman Year 3 take place. Now, it's a story that I have seen... I have the original issues uh, in one of my long boxes that I've put in storage. It's never been collected in its own trade paperback. And I, I don't really understand why, because this is always really heavily referenced, I think, by fans that fans just love Batman year three. And I mean, it plays on the year title, you know, year one was big. They, they released a year two trade. Why not a year three that sells, but like recently in the past couple of years, it was collected in the Batman, the Caped Crusader, volume two book. I read it through the tales of the Batman Marv Wolfman uh, story. And then of course the issues are on DC universe. So which version did you read in preps for this? I read the actual issues. I went into my long box and pulled those out and then I reread it again to get a different experience um, through DC universe. Although I actually owned them on comiXology as well. Well done. You're, you're committed. You love this story. So let me ask then, what was it about Batman Year 3 that that's how you ultimately, that's the story you chose? I think it's because it harkens back to like the true beginning of my Batman fandom. Uh, okay. this, the first issue came out June 13th, 1989. So it's 10 days before the movie dropped. And I, it was the second Batmania that, you know, people have experienced. And it was just, Batman was everywhere. Everyone had a shirt or a pin or an action figure or a box of cereal. Uh, <laughs> the bat dance was on the radio constantly. I mean, Batman was just everywhere. And it, it's hard to ignore like these beautiful George Perez covers with these, this big bat logo at the top. I mean, they're just, they're eye-catching. They stand out from everything that's on the stand. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a it's such a, a big part of my Batman DNA that I, I didn't really realize. Because at the time when I was actually starting to collect comics, um, you know, I didn't have a lot. So if I wanted to read something, I had to read these over again. So I'm amazed that these things are actually in one piece because I read them all the time. <laughs> To like to the point where even reading them, it's been a while since I've read it. Um, but I mean, it just it all comes back like the dialogue for me when I read these, and it, it's just all there, locked up in my brain. But now I can appreciate it more as an adult. So I think I've mentioned, I've referenced a few times that my uncle really helped me get my hands on some comics and growing up. And he had, he'd been buying multiple issues of Batman and detective comics. And he gave, uh, he gave me at one point, it was like a, a stack of 30 comics of the Batman title and gave my brother 30, uh, issues of the detective title. And he started with Batman 436, Batman year three. Oh, wow. So to me, it's like this cover, the cover of that is like, it is just printed in my brain and I'll never forget it because that that's the top of my stack. You know, it was before I had a long box because, you know, I was, I mean, when he gave them to us, we were like five, six, something like, or 
Yeah, probably like around there, five, six, something like that. I didn't have a long box. I didn't know what a long box was. So it was a stack of comics on a bookshelf for me. And because OCD means I have to have things in order, uh, this one was just on the top always. So this was a story I'd read, kind of like you said too, of these were, if I wanted to read Batman, this was kind of all that I had. I was in a small town. We didn't really have comics. We had a spinner rack at the grocery store. Uh, but they didn't keep it heavily stocked and then it went away fast. So these were, this was my Batman literature, if you will, until Christmas comes around or something and I could get like a trade. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But Batman year three. um, Why, why do you think it's, it's, I think it's very unique also. And it's on this level of storytelling, but yet for some reason it's, I feel like it's kind of, it's underrated still. Like you said, over 30 years later. And it's, it's still like, it's a story that everybody loves. And like, Oh, I love year three. I love year three, but I still kind of feel like it's not, it's not in that upper, that upper tier of Batman stories, you know? Well, everyone, you know, bows and worships at the altar of Batman year one. And, and rightfully so, because it's an amazing story. It's, it's beautiful to look at. It's one that I appreciate more every time I reread it. But as much as that's a Batman story, it's, I feel like it's more of a Jim Gordon story. Mm-hmm. And Batman year two makes that shift where it becomes more about Batman and who he is. And and growing up, it was really weird to me because tonally years one, two, and three are completely different styles of storytelling. Like the first time when I was reading it, I think I read year one first, and that's very much, this is year one of Batman, like by the day, you know, here's January 5th, here's February 2nd, here's February 18th versus year two was just a story that takes place during his second year of being Batman and year three takes place in the present day with flashbacks to his third year as Batman. So I don't know if it would have been more successful for them had they stuck with the year one format. But I, I actually, now I like it that they're so different in how they look at things and they all have a different visual and a different voice. Um, and I think it was really clever how they actually worked in uh, the flashbacks to what's happening in modern day uh, Batman, how that, how it affected him and how, who he was and uh, who he is at the moment when the story is being told. And the fact that it's Marv Wolfman mm-hmm. who brought the new teen Titans who, you know, did crisis on infinite earths doesn't have, you know, why this isn't, uh, you know, more readily available in, in print, I, I don't understand. I mean, the fact that year two finally got another trade, uh, like two, almost three decades after the last time they had it in print as a trade paperback. And now it's, it's a beautiful hardcover. If you don't have Batman year two, the deluxe edition, you need to go get it because it's amazing. I like that style that DC's doing with stories and doing deluxe editions and they're just expanding and making the books bigger and the pages and panels yeah. bigger and stuff like that. And I think cuz I have the I have the trade of year 2 and man I've sat on it a lot of like come on just upgrade for the hardcover. 
And I'm like, yeah. eh, no, you don't need to spend the money. And it's like, eh, but it's a bigger page, you know? <laughs> no, I've, I've been a, a sucker for these things. Like I have my original year one from 1989. I've got my year two from 90 or 91. And I've got a hardcover for year one, a hardcover for year two. I've got the black case book, all of Batman and Robin, all of Batman incorporated in the deluxe editions. I've got the absolute for Batman incorporated, even though I have the deluxe and I have it on digital and I, have <laughs> I think I have a problem. Nah, eh. <laughs> I, I don't know. So, I mean, I, I posted, I don't know how many I've got long Halloween and paperback long Halloween, first hardcover, long Halloween, absolute edition, long Halloween, every single issue. And I mean, now you just wait, they'll do another, a 30th anniversary, 25. I don't know. I'll be like, I better get it. You know, there might be something in here that right. I've never seen before. So, I mean, I get it. I mean, <laughs> we get if it. DC were to announce tomorrow that they're going to do an absolute that would have the four issues of year one, the four of year two, the four of year three in one volume, like an omnibus, I would be, I'd buy it in a second. I'd pre-order that thing. <laughs> you know what? Throw in Batman year 100 just for good measure, just to have all you the know, Batman year stories. <laughs> I, you know, you know, your audience, anybody listens like, I get it. Yeah, I will too. Like we know, we feel you, Javi. We're there. So I to dive in. I'm not gonna go like beat by beat, but I like we can hit the many different notes. I think in rereading this, I, I I don't know how many times I've read this story since I since I received it in the early '90s in that stack of lovely comic books. But I think a strength in this, and maybe why for some reason it's not. The story itself is not uh, talked about and it, like, you know, it's underrated is because it's not a typical Batman story in the sense of there are not flashy Batman haunting fighting like action shots all over. This is kind of like a Wolfman went for the like emotional beats in this story. And I think I was surprised in rereading it this time of. Oh, I actually feel like there isn't much action covering these four issues, and yet it never bothered me. Hmm. He he he's juggling multiple, which good storytellers do, juggling multiple you know plot threads throughout this. So number one, what everybody thinks of is you know the flashbacks to uh, Dick Grayson's the origin of Robin, basically. Then the present day. Bruce slash Batman's dealing with Jason Todd, uh, Jason Todd's death. Then we're also zoning in on the mob that's around Gotham city and they're getting picked off. Then we're also checking in on Anthony Zuko. And we're also checking in with Alfred who is feeling very burdened because he's the one who keeps keep, who keeps fighting to keep Zuko behind bars year after year. Yeah. And then we're also checking in with Nightwing slash Dick Grayson, who is also trying to figure out a, the basically the murders of these mob bosses. And then we also check in on Nightwing and Batman kind of confronting each other over this stuff and dealing with like these issues. So it's like, man, over four issues, Wolfman, he has packed a ton in this story in year three, I think. Yeah, and that's one thing I noticed in trying to read these is that it takes far longer to read these issues than it does 
like say city of bane mm-hmm. or any modern mm-hmm. story like there's just so much that's packed into them and and you made me realize a really good point right now is that when you think about modern back uh batman stories a lot of them is like it's batman versus two-face in this story arc or it's batman versus mm-hmm. the penguin or batman versus the joker but in here it's it's really simple and it's boiled down to like that essential element of batman versus the mob batman versus the common criminal and uh it, yeah it does give it a different flavor than than other stories from this era if you consider over in detective right now it's uh the mud pack where batman's dealing with four clay faces something you covered mm-hmm. in a prior episode so it it's really interesting now to think about it that the big bad in this story is Anthony Zuko and he's not, he's well known, but he's not, you don't consider him one of Batman's rogues galleries because for the most part, up until this story, he was in one issue and he died. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was in two episodes of the animated series. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's kind of interesting to have this big Batman story. That's very personal for not just Batman, but for Alfred and Dick, like you said, but really there's not like the big villain. So, like, considering how, you know, the movies like to double or triple up on the rogues gallery, like, there really isn't anyone in this story. Yeah, and I don't think that this, I mean, clearly, I think anybody listening can go ahead and assume that uh, I like this story a lot. So that's not going to surprise anybody at the end of like, actually, you know what? My final thoughts, this is a good one. But the <laughs> it doesn't detract at all for me that there isn't. That Anthony Zuko is the bad guy and uh, whoever's killing the mob is the villain, is the bad guy. And that's it. It's it doesn't. It doesn't detract anything for me. And I think that's just that's a, uh, a good old pat on the back of Marv Wolfman. That's a good pat on the back for the artist, Pat Broderick, who I'd never heard of before. And I think I always have to look up and be like, who? Uh, sorry, Mr. Broderick, if you're listening to this. Uh, but I think probably for a Robin origin, I'll always think of Robin's Reckoning on the animated series. Mm-hmm. That was the most accessible to me as far as like I had I think they, they released VHS tapes way back in the day and it was Robin's Reckoning. And I just played that thing on repeat over and over. That to me is like my my Robin origin. But right behind that was this was this story. I love the flashbacks that Wolfman uh, inserts throughout the story of Robin's, I mean, the, the always traumatic circus circus death, which I think was n- perhaps no more emotional than in these pages, the way that Broderick really, Oh yeah. It's in that first issue, like towards the end of it. And, you know, Let's see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten panels on one page of like the beat by beat of the parents falling in Dick's face, and like that's a you were they were going for broke on that, and that was um traumatic to me a little bit as a kid. Well, look at like, so, <laughs> when he comes upon his parents, and like as mm-hmm. his hand goes up to his mouth and his eyes are wide with shock. And his parents are in the foreground dead and his mom's arm is bent behind her. Like, it's horrible. Yeah. And yet it's like they there's something with that page. So it's page 16 in issue 436 that it's like that the foreground is the parents. And yet the the coloring 
like I don't know. It's almost like that's a way to help make it subtle, even though it's all right there. But yeah. they make the coloring different, which does like I don't know. It's respectful death. I don't know how you'd phrase it. It's it it really works. Yeah, because it calls attention, but at the same time, because the only things that aren't monochromatic um, is Dick and the ringmaster and and his um, surrogate uncle, the clown, coming to him. Like, so your eye goes to where there's color, even though these two dead people are, you know, right in front of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the coloring Um, on this is, is something else. Like, noticing it even more so on digital, where it's just it comes off as more vibrant and you really notice um, how they shift um, your perspective by how they color some of the people in the foreground. Yeah, definitely. So the, in the flashback on that in page 12, like, gee, do you think this was on purpose that the top panel of showing Haley circus, everybody's in almost like different shades of yellow, except for this family of three. And it's a, a father, a mother and a little boy. His name is Tim. Gee, Tim who foreshadow uh, that like that exactly. That's what I think of right away when you're saying of like these colors and and popping. But then as you kind of scurry through the next couple panels, it is then when it's the Grayson's in their in their cost their their suits walking in the backgrounds are different shades of yellow. And then you have the Grayson's meeting Tim Drake's family. They're different colors with yellow backgrounds. And I mean, it's just it's unique. It's definitely you know because i've read it many times that i focus on that most people reading it the first time are going to be like wow look at those different shades of coloring huh this is amazing but i don't for for a nerd like myself i really enjoy that (laughs) well if you think about too like i my brain was going a lot to batman forever reading it this time because Mm -hmm. that's celebrating its 25th anniversary right now and and joel Mm -hmm. schumacher just passed away so it's one of those movies that I really actually loved in 1995. And then as we got away from that and we got more away from like the dark Knight aspect that Tim Burton had established, mm-hmm. like a majority of people, I started to rag on those two movies a lot. Um, and I kind of came back to it um, this last time watching it and just uh, reevaluate it and actually being able to appreciate it again, like I did when I was, 17 but one of the things that schumacher had said that he was making a living comic book that's why he had all these bright vibrant colors and you know reading this you know i can i can see where he might have taken some inspiration with his color palette in those movies maybe maybe the book isn't quite as neon as (laughs) in this film but you know comic books do play with aspects like that a lot easier it's a lot more accepted on the page than it is on the big screen Mm-hmm. If he uh, if he looked at this for the Grayson, the Grayson murders and tragedy, I mean, he kind of nailed it because I still think, uh, what do I say? Nitpicks aside of Batman Forever, I think that the the circus scene is very effective in that movie. So if Schumacher pulled from this, which like he had to have, right? Like he had to have looked at this of oh, we're gonna have Dick Grayson's Robin's origin we got to look at comics that had Robin's origin. And this is a really good one. And I think like, he, he pulled from some good stuff and it, it worked out. It worked. And something you touched upon how they, how uh, Wolfman foreshadows Tim right here. I mean, they even call him by name, 
versus mm-hmm. they don't really name um, Jack and I forget her name, uh, Mrs. Drake. Um, but from the very first page of this issue through the radio DJ, like he sets up stuff that he plays with a little bit later in this story and in A Lonely Place of Dying, where they mention the orphanage that's going to come into play in the back half of the story. And mm-hmm. it's it's nothing really, but they, they make note of this spelling uh, champ, this nine-year-old Moon Kaplan. And that gets mentioned again in A Lonely Place of Dying over the radio. And it's not like you ever meet this character, but it starts to set the stage that this world of Gotham, there's more than just Batman and some gangsters. There's there's other stuff going on in the DC universe at the same time. And I don't know. It's I almost always... like the, the Tom King's uh, joke of, I always, I forget the, the the quarterback's name that always fumbles it, that he would insert in all of it, you know, in all of his Batman run yeah. somehow, whenever yeah. they're watching a, a Gotham uh, football game and you hear it on the radio or on TV or something, and he fumbles again. That's just what that makes me go. Yeah, it, it's, it, I don't know, it's just something that kind of adds just more life to, to the city. And uh, something I didn't question when I was, was 12, but I was kind of looking at it now like, huh, like the story opens almost at sunset. And as a kid, I didn't question the fact that Batman's out in the daytime. Like that, that seems to be like such a, oh no, Batman never goes out during the day. You know, not very subtle, Alfred. But, mm-hmm. you know, here he is. <laughs> and Wolfman even mentions it, that it'll be another hour before the Batman feels more at home. And it's just, there's such a great voice that he gives not only to his, his narration uh, throughout the whole story, but like the characters themselves have some like great, like hard boiled dialogue with Batman talking about, you know, I I didn't want to wash off too much dirt and stuff like that. I just, oh, this book is so good. Where's my hard cover? (laughs) Yeah. Come on, DC. You want some money? Make a hardcover year three. So, man, there's just so many different different paths. So let's stick with Origin of Robin. The man guilty of it is Anthony Zuko. So in here, we get a bit of a a backstory of Zuko that we hadn't that I know of hadn't gotten before or since. No, uh, this, anybody this, correct me if I'm wrong. This was it. I uh, Denny O'Neill did a great. Um, Legends of the Dark Knight issue 100, where he uh, revisited this story again. Um, but I don't think Zuko's ever really been quite as fleshed out. I, I haven't read Robin Year One uh, by Chuck Dixon, so I don't know if that touches on it at all. Um, but I mean, other than other than this story and uh, the Danny O'Neill one, I mean, he's he's in one issue of Detective. So in this, uh, Wolfman kind of gives him. Uh, almost like a Godfather part two backstory of this mm-hmm. great tragedy of how he grew up told through Alfred, who's doesn't need a computer file to tell Batman Zuko's history. Cause he's got it memorized. Of, That's of a how, good comparison. A Godfather how, part two. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I didn't understand it at 12, but now that I've seen those yeah. movies a few times, it's like, Oh, this is very like, this is his rise to power. This is how he saw violence as a child mm-hmm. and how it molded and shaped him. Even to the point where going against the mob, you know, the five families um, band mm-hmm. together to try and figure out how they're going to deal with this problem. 
so and getting it, Zuko's go ahead sorry i would say it's really interesting too and to compare it to the original story because in that zuko's short and fat and balding and here mm-hmm. he's he's younger uh strapping like if he were to get into a fight with batman you you would think there might he might actually have a shot i mean he's not going to take him out but he's going to give him more trouble than than the original zuko would have mhm well so with this uh, Robert De Niro acted backstory. Like, did that? What do you want to say? Did that make you feel for him? Because sometimes when they give origins to villains, and they've got a, you know, we're in a. I think we're in a state now with comics in in all the mediums of you know TV shows and movies, games, comics, all that of well, we need to flesh out the backstory of the villain and show how they came to be. And I don't think that we always need that. Sometimes a villain just is, and that's like, that's creepy enough, you know, but for, for Zuko, do you think this, this benefits that character having a backstory like this? I don't, I don't think it makes you feel necessarily sympathetic towards them. Because you never get the sense that he was a good kid. And if this one thing didn't happen, mm-hmm. you know, he would be like Dick Grayson. He would be a nice kid. Like he was the kid from the start that saw how his dad treated other people. And that's what he gave back. Um, and I guess that is sympathetic. I mean, you do feel bad for him, I guess. Uh, you certainly wouldn't want a parent to be like that to their child, but it's 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 something that Wolfman said too, like all the other kids in his family got adopted. All the other relatives took the kids, but but not Anthony, because he was the he was the bad seed. He was he was unrepentant. And you never you never get that sensitive side of him or that redeemable that redeeming quality that would make you feel sympathetic towards him. Like he has no remorse, even eleven years later, that he took a boy's parents away from him. He, mm-hmm. when Alfred and he finally have a confrontation, there, there's no regret whatsoever. He would do it again if he could, right then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it not only informs that the true character. He's just he's just a a bad guy. <laughs> he's just a bad dude. So I agree with you on everything you said, and it it I was not bored or. Uh, bothered at all that there's ever been a backstory with that. I found it interesting. It's like, Oh, okay. But yeah, kind of like you said, it's not like he was this great kid and was transformed to the dark side because of this one event. It's like, nah, he's just, eh, he was already over the edge. Yeah. <laughs> not that like they showed him murdering people as a kid before all this or anything like that, but like, eh, he but he never got a sense. He was he cut up a nun. <laughs> so, I mean, when he was when he was going out the door, he took a knife and slashed a, a nun's face yeah. and that only wanted to help him. Like he's yeah. he's a bad guy. And the whole backstory, I mean, really serves to kind of set up that the final act of chapter four of why uh-huh. we're back at that location. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, it's kind of funny, too, because it always it always struck me when he does attack the nun. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Sister Mary Elizabeth, and he runs off into the night. It's so, it's so melodramatic. 
goes running out of the orphanage with his hands up in the air, holding the knife. The sky is dark. Lightning's cracking <laughs> behind him. Like, I was like, yeah. like it so <laughs> needs a Danny Elfman score to go over that moment, or, or Shirley Walker, just to like, I can hear it in my head. He goes running out. Oh, man. Man. oh that'd be funny. Uh, so that's our boy. That's our boy Zuko. Let's hop. Let's hop to the the mob families connecting to the present day. And he's, I think, Wolfman does a really good job of planting all these seeds, and he lets them all sprout, and he lets them all connect. Like you just said, of him at the Zuko at the orphanage, and how that comes to play. That's the last. That's like the that's the third act. That's the final part of the story is connecting back to the orphanage and in a really smart way because he's got this ledger that has all of these basically all the secrets are in this ledger. So he's got the mob in his in his back pocket and he's in he's in jail and when he gets out he needs to go get the books and then he's he's got a uh, he, he's got them all scared of him. All the mob. Well, meanwhile, they're all getting they're starting to get picked off. And I feel like and this isn't a negative point, but I feel like that's where Batman's use outside of flashbacks comes into play. Like the mob family aspect. It's like, oh, that's what gives Batman something to do. I don't think he's necessarily the star of the show, even though it is a Batman story. I think Dick Grayson is the star of the show, you know? Yeah, it's definitely very heavy um, to Dick's perspective because he's. This is his introduction into how far his father basically has fallen, because uh-huh. they're still at the point where they're very estranged um, and haven't spoken to each other. And there's a, a great moment where he and Alfred uh, get to talk for a second. And he's like, I thought when you when you told me everything that was going on, like I thought you were over exaggerating, and now I see it, and 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 Dick is shocked by it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess Dick does play a pretty uh, more influential part, but I mean, it's also his origin story as well, and yeah. it makes sense too that Marv Wolfman, who reinvigorated the Titans, mm-hmm. would be involved in this story since he's so familiar with dick and his backstory he's like i want dick grayson and everything i like dick grayson uh but i think batman's really important too and Mm -hmm. um because it's it's how he handles the mob Mm -hmm. throughout these issues like he's still a detective and there's a great line that bruce imparts onto dick that we've got to think with our heads, not with our fists. And it's something that um, Wolfman brings back in the first chapter of A Lonely Place of Dying, where Batman's starting to realize now that he's not using his head as much as he used to. Um, and it was really, what was really interesting to me as I was reading this, um, this time, was how my perspective has has shifted a lot. Um, I just recently watched like 12 monkeys and there's a a line in that movie that I really loved about Bruce Willis and they're, they're hiding in a movie theater and she, and uh, Madeline Stowe's bandaging them up and they're watching vertigo. 
and he saw it before as a kid, but it seems different to him now because he's different. And that's kind of how I felt reading the story in, in the wake of Batman v Superman, you have a Bruce Wayne who has lost a Robin. Uh, a, a huge portion of his company has been destroyed by these Kryptonians and he's lost work family members and he's just full of this rage and he can't see straight and he's going after Superman until he has the, the Martha moment where he realizes that he's become Joe chill. And I saw like seeds of that um, in this story. And then la- that kind of follows into um, a lonely place of dying where Batman's just, he doesn't have a Robin anymore. He doesn't know how to cope with it. And he's just, he's being more vindictive, more ruthless. Um, and it's so shocking to Dick that he's concerned about it. Um, he says, you know, the yellow brick road was paved with blood. That's how we found Batman. And there's a moment where Batman has to um, fight the mob in issue three. And he disarms one of the, um, one of the mobsters And as he grabs the gun, he starts pointing at everyone and waving it. And then he steadies it on one of the guards. And it's like a POV shot of Batman pointing a gun at the reader. Mm -hmm. And it, it disturbed me then. I I don't think I knew quite why, like it's wrong for Batman to hold a handgun, you know, if he's using a sonic gun or a grappling gun, that's one thing. And that's fine. But like, a pistol, the weapon that took his parents' lives. Like he wouldn't consider that. And the fact that he's threatening other people with one, I mean, it, it really illustrates to me now more as an adult of like how far Bruce has fallen, how he's been affected by the loss of Jason. So it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I mean, you know, I'm not ashamed of it. I read the dark Knight returns when I was 18, that was the first time that I read that story because many years prior, I saw the page of Batman holding the rifle Mm -hmm. and I said, Batman doesn't shoot guns and I refused to read it. Oh, wow. My nerd. Yeah. My nerdiness goes way back to preteens even. And I'm like, Batman does not shoot guns. And I refuse to, to read that. And so that that's what triggers, (laughs) but I'm cha with this of what you just said of him holding a gun at the, you know, in the, the POV shot of it and everything like Batman does not hold guns. Ah, and then I think, ah, Dark Knight Returns. It's not, everything's not as it seems, Ryan, take a chill pill here. And uh, yeah, I think that's a really cool moment of how he kind of just like, he does disarm the mob too at that moment. And I mean, that's such a Batman moment. Like, Oh yeah. <laughs> it's so great. I love it. Oh, he's got his cowl hidden under the dinner tray. It just mm-hmm. all of a sudden the waiter just turns into Batman and takes out a whole room full of gangsters. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's great. Absolutely. Yeah. A, so I agree with you definitely on, you can't remove Batman from the story because Wolfman has him. Like he's a piece of thread, like tying into everything as well. Just like Dick Grayson is. Uh, Alfred is too, in a very, Oh, what do you want to say in a very subtle way, but also he, I mean, he starts the book. It's really cool. I love how Wolfman starts this story in four thirty six of like, we don't know who's talking and it's not revealed until a ways into that issue. And then Alfred just kind of like, you know, he's very reflective, but yet it makes, 
so much sense. I'm like, he's almost the emotional beat behind all of this too, because he, he just does. He, and just for the pure fact of, he doesn't know the connections of uh, Zuko's ledger with the mob, like, like Bruce and Dick do. Alfred's yeah. just pure. Like, this is just a bad guy. He cannot get out. Like he's not, he's not allowed to come out of, get out of jail free. And he's afraid of what that's going to do to Bruce, who's already in a very bad state of mind. And he's a, and he wants to tell Dick, who's also trying to deal with Bruce and deal with the mob. And so I think Alfred's such an integral part of the story as well. And I, I really like how Wolfman, how Wolfman writes him. And then still, I like, I keep, I haven't commented so much on Broderick's uh, art, which I don't think is like the greatest Batman art ever, but it, there's nothing wrong with it either. It's good. I like how he draws. He's very emotive in the faces of of the characters and Alfred, especially in these more emotional moments and stuff, you know? Yeah. Broderick is it's it's funny because I I really do enjoy the art in this issue, uh, but there's a lot of. Odd choices at times, like there's some great compositions, but. Uh, like the the part you mentioned with Alfred going to the parole board, like when I read as a kid, I I don't know what my brain was thinking, but like you have that shot, and it's the back of Alfred's head, but like his receding hairline isn't like the comb over that it normally is. It's like it goes straight back. So at the time when I first read it, like I thought it was just like a really weird chair with a rug on it. Like I didn't quite understand what I was looking at. And there's um uh there's a part where they're they're trying to crack down on some clues. I think it's Dick. Um and he pulls pulls up a record, it might be Batman, of um this guy named Sherman Sadikoy. And this mm-hmm. is just after the um Alfred Zuko scene, I think. And this this uh, Sherman guy looks exactly like Zuko. So there's a couple times where I think the art does come off a little confusing. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was going to ask you about this too. There's a, a character in the first chapter uh, that they call Nick, who's very much against Alfred um, speaking in front of the board. And he's, he's nervously sweating and he wants to get, you know, Zuko out of prison. Uh, and then the next three chapters, you see a man named Taft who looks a little bit shorter, different color hair, different hairstyle. And I was kind of confused, like, is this supposed to be the same guy or is this a separate guy that Zuko has something on that's kind of underneath Taft and Taft is manipulating him? I, w- I was kind of confused on that. And even still rereading it again, like they make the inference that it's Taft who's on the parole board. He's the one guy trying to get Zuko out. So I'm not sure well, if this I think, person is supposed to be Taft and then Broderick decided to change his look for the other is chapters. The, is the sweating guy Drexel, the guy who's in the shower? That oh, no, no, no. This is, this is in the parole board meeting. Uh, okay. Oh, on page, one of them. Oh, yeah. On page six, it's, he's got like white hair. It's a full head of hair and he's like using a handkerchief to like mop up his brow. Uh, but yeah. he looks totally different than Taft does. And they call him Nick and Nicholas, but then you never see him again. And from then on in, it's Taft, who looks almost a little Nicholson-ish, 
by the time we get to the last the last issue when he's attacking nightwing in 439 like his hair pattern's a little bit different and there's something weird with the coloring where it goes a little blue instead of black even though nightwing kind of has black hair mm-hmm. but uh so it's yeah i don't like- i don't have an answer for you because i'm yeah. not i'm not fully clear either so i mean good observation i'll i have I have lunch plans with Broderick later this week. I'll bring it up and I'll ask him. Oh, sweet. Who's this guy? (laughs) Who's Nicholas? Okay. Were you planting a seed that never sprouted later on? Like what's going on here? I don't like it. I mean, it could just be showing how deep the corruption in Gotham is, how he's just, you know, he's got people everywhere, all different levels of government and in the mob. And, and even after, if you do the math, this story is either Batman year 14 or year, 13 Mm -hmm. the story kind of contradicts itself a little bit where they mention you know it's been a decade that that um that dick's been with batman but then zuko's been in jail for 11 years for the murder of the graysons and if that was year Mm -hmm. three and we're at year 14 then at that if you're counting so (laughs) i mean gotham is still a cesspool of corruption I, but I guess I that's think, why we have a Batman. That's right. I think, actually, I prefer Broderick's drawing of Dick as Nightwing than as Robin. Yeah. His like, his kids leave a little something to be desired. That, especially that yeah. bowl cut on Tim at the circus. Not mm-hmm. a good look, but I mean, we probably all had bowl cuts when we were three years old. <laughs> well, I mean, it, was it six page 16 of 437? And we have that first shot of Batman and Robin. Oh, yeah. Which one, that's the only time, or not the only time in the story, but he's inconsistent on yellow oval or no yellow oval. Hashtag team yellow oval. (laughs) Shout out to Pete. Yeah. Shout out to Pete. But then Robin looks weird in that look. It's just not like, eh. eh." Robin looks almost a little Art Adams-ish in that that panel. (laughs) Um, but yeah. yeah, I was going to point that out. Yeah. Page 16, he gives Dick the Robin suit. They presumably leap into action for the first time as Batman and Robin. He's got the huge black bat on his chest. He's got the pouch belt. Then you cut to page 17 and he's from behind. So you don't see anything. And then page 18, they burst through the window. He's got the capsule belt. He's got the yellow oval. And mm-hmm. Robin is saying, this is my first appearance in public. And this is how you greet me. So, so I don't know if they just kind of did like a rooftop reconnaissance and yeah. kept to the shadows for the first night. And the Batman's like, ah, you know what? I'm going to lighten up my look a little bit. I think I'm going <laughs> to debut my new look for a test drive. Cause then later on, when we go back to more flashbacks, he's back to the, mm-hmm. the black bat, mm-hmm. which was a big, it was a big novelty at the time because I mean, we were deep into the yellow oval period so that's how you knew like these flashbacks were in the past because it harkened back to that that older look. And now that it's ubiquitous, that's all we get is a black bat on the chest and the big pouch belt. Yeah, I mean, I'm not there's just some designs with yellow oval that I like more than signs without and some signs and symbols I like no yellow oval than with. Here definitely I like the yellow oval more than not. Yeah. So 
Uh, so speaking, so here we go. Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin. I think I'm glad that yes, technically I was alive, but I was not reading comics. Uh, I was I was born in fall of '86, so I was I could look at pictures by the time these were coming out, but I could not read the words. The I think I would have been very frustrated month to month, and it seems like it's just kind of a hole Batman, you know, month after month. And I do understand the long the long game they were playing here, which kind of doesn't really pay off until the story arc following this one, a lonely place of dying where Batman finally starts to accept some help and he gets over that hump and he kind of loosens up a little bit. Uh, I think I would have been frustrated waiting every single month and Batman just, he just kind of comes off as a prick. I mean, you understand why, because they're really milking that whole Jason Todd, you know, it's Batman's fault is how he's, you know, how he's seeing it. They're really playing that angle up and that yeah. really plays out still here in year three, even though it's a, like a year later after Jason's Todd's Jason Todd's death, but it's much uh, easier to read now that I have everything at my fingertips and I don't have to wait a month. I can just keep going, keep going, keep going. I'm like, Nope, he'll get over the hump. There he is. Now he's better. You know, Batman and Robin again to that little circus boy, Tim Drake. <laughs> But I, I I don't know if you remember at the time if of you reading those if you were ever fed up or if you were fine with Batman's story. I I was fine with it. I don't think it really phased me. I kind of accepted that, you know, this was the Dark Knight, and as, I think it was something that DC had kind of wound up tailoring it to for that year because he was solo in the movie, so they kind of leaned more towards him being solo um, in the books. And mm-hmm. and I had so many other stories of Batman and Robin um, at my disposal that I didn't really think about it a whole lot. And when this story came out, it, the book was bi-weekly because it was summer. So they were actually pumping them out with a little more regularity. I think, which in the day would have helped out as well. Like, I don't necessarily feel like it dragged out so long because... From my perspective, you had Robin in these four issues, and then Mm -hmm. in the next storyline, Tim Drake comes in, which was just mind-blowing to me to be on the ground level of that and to put myself in his place being 12, 13 at the time and to see someone my age like – like I really got – like this is why they made Robin for younger kids Mm -hmm. because like – I was able to put myself in Tim's shoes and be like, yeah, I couldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, especially in the beginning, like Tim felt competent, but he seemed more, um, not seemed he was, he was more of a detective than he was the physical athlete that Dick was. Mm -hmm. So like, I remember reading those early Robin stories like that Robin mini. And then the ones that he, the team ups he had with Batman where, like, yeah, like he he needed to be sidelined for a bit because he wasn't quite ready. Like you felt a sense of danger when Tim was going out into the world, especially in Robin 2 when he had to deal with the Joker alone. Mm-hmm. Like there was a great sense of peril in those books that I that I really enjoyed and got a thrill out of. Those were, I think I also got those in that stack of my 30 comics. Oh, that's the, awesome. was it, that was the, the Joker's wild was Robin too, right? Yeah. With the like 25,000 hologram covers. Yep. I have those hologram <laughs> covers. 
I don't remember them now, but those were also ones I read over and over and over again. They wouldn't be worth, I mean, they're still intact, no missing pages, no bent, whatever, but it's just like, oh yeah, this has been read about 20 times. <laughs> yeah. Well, my friend uh, was a big <laughs> comic speculator, so he was like, he bought every variant of like that Robin two miniseries thinking I'm going to turn these around for big money someday. And <laughs> this is my retirement. Yeah. They were, they were everywhere. Those things are, you know, worth more than the dollar bin you find them in probably. Exactly. <laughs> uh, is there like going through, I like it, what we've hit on. Is there anything maybe that you'd like to comment on more, bring up, anymore i i do love the the confrontation i think it, it's a little brief but when zuko is shot and killed right when he comes out of prison and they end it on such a good note of nightwing looking at bruce and saying you knew you knew this was going to happen didn't you didn't you and then boom it's done the next the next comic that was kind of over and resolved by the end of page two i'm like yeah Oh, that's a that was a really good kind of cliffhanger, and they were they they could have drug it out just a little bit more because it was kind of like, well, is Bruce so, is he so lost that he's just like, yeah, this guy like, that's not Batman, and I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it was really just shocking to me. I don't I don't know if I had the conscious thought of this isn't Batman because I think Broderick actually really sells it. Um, when Nightwing starts questioning about it and Bruce is like visibly shaken mm-hmm. about the whole event. And then Nightwing brings up this thing about how Batman locked up a guy in, in the sewer to maybe die. And I'm like, what is he talking about? I mean, now I know it's a reference to 10 nights of the beast, but like the whole, the whole thing was just mind blowing to me because I was so maybe more staunch about continuity mm-hmm. when I was younger because I, I read a lot of Spider-Man and there was a very clear narrative of Spider-Man up until a certain point to like 2007 from the start where it's, it's a linear story. There's not a lot of zero hours or crisis on infinite earths to like reboot things. So like I knew the Robin origin story really well. I'd read, you know, reprints of it. Like I knew how that story went. So to see a younger Zuko get shot down so violently, because that opens up the last chapter and there's big gaping bullet holes in his body. Yeah. Like I'd never seen something like that in a comic book period, let alone a Batman comic. I mean, usually he was, you know, walking down the street of Gotham and like commissioner Gordon was wearing a green outfit to be mystery man. Cause no one could know that Gordon was still fighting crime under a different disguise. And Vicki Vale was trying to figure out, you know, who Batman was. So it, it, I think I was just blown by like, how adult everything was and how deep and complex it was. You that were blown away just yeah. like Tony Zuko. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was challenging my, my perceptions of what the actual continuity was. And it wasn't until um, legends of the dark Knight 100 when uh, Danny O'Neill told the story again and it was 
it was different. Like I didn't, <laughs> I don't know why I was so fixated on it. But it was like, this isn't how it was told in year three. This isn't how the dialogue was in, in the first Robin appearance. Like this isn't how the story goes. And then at one point it just clicked that it was legends of the dark night. And, and legends, legends change over time. They adapt for their new audience. And that was kind of like the beginning of, of me being a little more lax when it comes to continuity and more lax to different interpretations and like being accepting of like the big telephones and Batman going out during the day or, or Adam West, you know, telling citizens to use the crosswalk versus Michael Keaton being in the shadows or, you know, Ben Affleck branding people like they're all still Batman and you can tell that story in different ways and still find an essence of the character. And that just kind of makes me appreciate what's going on in year three more because it's just a different way of, of spinning that story, making it fresh for new people. I mean, it certainly worked for me to get me even more into Batman. It sounds like it did for you as well. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, the, the, it's funny you mentioned that you bring that up. I was to kind of wrap up this year three story, where do you think you'd sit this amongst uh, Robin origin stories? I mean, it, part of me is like, well, this is the nostalgia talking, but uh, for me, this is kind of my wind up being my favorite. Uh huh. Hey, that's so, valid. It's valid. It's so <laughs> tied into where I really started to care monthly about Batman. And mm-hmm. and all the stuff that followed with it, it's so, it's such an essential part of of that story of of how Tim came into into the Batman universe and Dick's legacy is of uh, legacy is Robin. I, one of the things I love about DC is the legacy aspect of all these characters. How one group of people have Jay Garrick to look to. You know, my dad read Barry Allen. I read Barry Allen until Wally West took his place. I'm like, God, this Wally guy sucks. He's a brat. <laughs> and then and then reading year one of The Flash and be like, oh, oh, I get it. Like I had the same like issues that Wally did. And and I could see why he was the way he was. And then Wally became my Flash. And Kyle Rayner became my Green Lantern instead of Hal Jordan now. So I mean, it's just all part of this big tapestry um, that, and, and this was my entry point. So I think it's always going to have a, a special place, even though, you know, like, like for you, like the animated series telling is, is excellent. You know, you've got Biff from back to the future as Tony Zuko. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's just so many different ways you can tell these legends. This but is this definitely yeah, this is definitely up there for me. I do think Robin's Reckoning is my favorite, but this is up there. I'd say because it's, uh, I do love the dark victory way back in episode three, Yeah, uh, the dark victory origin of Robin, the way that they, they did that. One. However, it doesn't come until so long in the book that we don't, if they did a follow-up, I think as I mentioned in that episode, it was so long ago, a follow-up like six-issue miniseries uh, that continued right from the last page on, 
then I could almost be like, oh, I think that's my favorite. But, you know, the story literally ends with him taking the vow, so to speak. Yeah. And we don't see him in his first night in the suit or anything like that. Whereas in here, we get the flashbacks of the buildup, the tragedy, the birth of Robin, his first night out as Robin. Like, we just kind of get a little bit more. And so while I love Dark Victory, I think if you want to go comic, I think this this seals it for me. I think it tops the anything that came before it. And I think it's funny because my age, my generation, like Tim Drake was their Robin. Yeah. He was their Robin. And I do. I'm somewhat envious of the people who got Dick Grayson as Robin as much as they did. Granted, I got Dick Grayson as Robin in the animated series and there's tons of comics I can go back and read on. And so I, I think Dick Grayson's just my favorite Robin. So I think that's where this story helps with that too of, Oh, there's a little bit of Dick Grayson sprinkled as, as Robin. Yeah. With one B not Robin them hoods or whatever he says as he comes through the window. That's right. (laughs) I I have a hard time picking a favorite Robin. I really do. I mean, it's hard not to love Dick because he was the first and uh-huh. you know, had that title for so long. But, you know, I came, I was at the perfect age for Tim. Uh-huh. And, uh, and a lot like Rob had said on, on his episode, like, uh, like Damien irked me so much. And it wasn't until uh, Dick is Batman and when Damien realizes they're going to get his dad back and he's excited to have his dad, but then that means that he can't be Batman and Robin anymore with Dick that mm-hmm. I started to actually kind of like Damien. <laughs> and then through, through Pat Gleason, I, I started to like him a lot too. And then like my son really likes um, Damien as well. Cause he's, he's at that age yeah. and, and he's like, he was a huge, huge fan of super sons of having Jonathan Kent and Damian Wayne going off on adventures together in the juxtaposition. So, I mean, there's, there's a Robin for everybody. Yeah. But I mean, Damien's not for me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think I made that clear. Damien is not for me, but that's okay. And now that I think about it, I I think my favorite Robin origin actually is probably all-star Batman and Robin because you know, what's better than a child having to sit in a cave and eat a rat? Whoa. Really? No, not at all. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I hate that story. Wow. I was going to say, holy crap. I've tried (laughs) tried so hard to love that. And the art is great, but, and it's even worse that it's unfinished. Yeah. So I actually got the, I got the all-star or not the all-star, I got the absolute version of that. And I don't hate the story. I hate that it's not, that it's not finished. I'm glad that I came into the book late. So I didn't have that. What was, I think issue four was the only issue that came out that year. Cause they were just so, they were so horrible at release dates. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, I'm glad that I came when like issue seven was released or something like that. So I was able to get seven, eight, nine, ten, and then it never came again. And then it was Rob, they're going to end it with the Robin's own series. And then that came and went and all that crap. But yeah, that, never, that book is something that was after strikes again, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was starting to fall off the Miller train there between strikes again. I mean, there's no way you're living up to, 
the expectations of the Dark Knight Returns of doing a uh-huh. sequel to that. It's I think it's an impossible task. The only thing you can do is something different. But for me, that something different didn't work because I wanted Batman, and there's very little Batman in that story. And then to go to All Star Batman and Robin, which I kind of liked at first, I liked the Sin City vibe that he was giving it. But then by the end of it, I was just like, this isn't this isn't for me. <laughs> Yeah, it's not for a lot of people. I wouldn't but, say it's necessarily for me, but I like the art. And I mean, I yeah. like that it's just like a completely off the off the rails Batman story. It's like, eh, sure, yeah, why I not? St- <laughs> I still have the issues and I'll take it out to, to look at it every now and then. And I have the, the Jim Lee action figure from it. But Oh, nice. The, uh, the, especially because it starts to set up that dick is kind of a psychopath too to where he would mm-hmm. do what he does in strikes again that yeah, it doesn't sit well with me <laughs> but that's okay because you know someone yeah. else can like it and that's fine if you dig that story more power to you i hope you read it a lot and enjoy it good for you so let's do some closing questions i okay. think you know what these questions are i may be familiar so, with them okay so do you have, yeah, you do, a favorite part of this of this story? And then if you do, what is it? My favorite part is in issue two, issue 437, uh-huh. when uh, Alfred brings Dick home to meet Bruce, and Bruce takes him around the mansion, and you start to see, like, the light bulb go off in Bruce's head. And he starts talking really strangely to Dick and says, two years ago, I began to answer violence with violence. I was very effective, but to stay ahead, I had to change. And Dick is like, I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) And he opens up a clock tower and they just start descending into the Batcave. And then these bright lights kick on. And when Dick can finally open his eyes, you know, there in all his glory is just Batman standing in front of him, this beautiful like half page panel i it's it's just epic it's just really well staged and and like this is the start of the team and then you go into this great montage of of dick being trained by batman like you're leaning to the left you know adjust yourself and they start he starts teaching them how to be a detective mm-hmm. and uh i just love that whole portion of it i think it's really awesome you know, that is actually what I was going to say, too. <laughs> I really like bringing him back to the manor for the first time. But I'll also say maybe on on equal footing with that. It was really weird. I'm not some kind of like little emotional. Emotional man in comics just make me cry. But I like the courtroom. The courtroom scene. Yeah. In the, in is the last weird. issue. And kind of like Bruce's basically explanation on like why he wants uh, to bring Dick, make Dick his ward. And the fact of, I don't know if Bruce was just honest with the nun or if he fibbed a nun, <laughs> like, I don't know, but she could, she believed him that he was, that he was being honest given his like reputation and everything. And I just kind of think, so there you go. I just think the, the strength in the story is the, the Bruce Dick relationship. Yeah. The only thing that tracks um, for that scene for me, 
and it's a it's a recent nitpick is when you go into the, this flashback now, the entire thing is told in like these weird little flashback bubbles. Like mm-hmm. the regular borders are are distorted by these little ripples to you know indicate that this is in the past. <laughs> that kind of makes it a little cheesy from a from a 2020 perspective. Um, yeah, but but the writing and the art themselves though it completely elevate that scene. Yeah. And then it actually adds weight too to the end, which was another part that I really loved. Like I, maybe I, I don't think I had a death in the family yet when I got this issue, but the way Wolfman describes um, Batman, like he can hear Dick being attacked by Taft and it, just the way Wolfman says that he's seen mired in mud as steel whips against soft flesh. And it does these flashbacks. It juxtaposes um, Jason's murder by the Joker via crowbar to Dick currently getting beat by a crowbar and how for the first time in months, like Batman says, Jason, as he's like trying to save his first partner, like that really got to me too. Mm-hmm. It's just, there's this great running pose that Broderick does. And it's like a close up on Batman's face of desperation that, that really sell that moment for me too. That would probably, that'd be like my number two. Number two, closely behind. Closely Very behind. close second. <laughs> now, what is your favorite panel? Do you have a favorite panel? Favorite panel? It's hard to pick one. I mean, we, we've pretty much hit on them already. The, the first Batman and Robin going into action is mm-hmm. just such a classic moment. Uh, and then the panel that I mentioned of Batman standing in front of Dick for the first time. Um, yeah. Those are probably the big two, but then like a special like bronze medal to the big splash page of Batman um, confronting the mob in their uh, restaurant in 438. Like there's just this, he's just rooted in power. Like he's Batman is so tall in the page and he's ripped and he's got like these, the great big bat ears and, and all these guys are just drawing guns on him. And you just know Batman's, you know, going to give a beating right now. Well, yet again, you uh, call it for me. The Batman takes Dick to the Batcave for the first time. Then welcome to your new home. Welcome to the Batcave. Page 13 of uh, that second issue. That's my favorite panel. Yeah. I like it. I like it all. Even though there's no yellow oval. That's okay. I can get past that. I just, I like that panel. It's striking. And like the, the way that they drew the bat cave, like from this time period and then the next few years, I just really like the cave, the way they illustrated the cave and stuff too. So for sure. And I liked, um, later on too, in, um, in four thirty nine when you look at the cave and there's that old forties Batmobile just tucked off in the corner. Mm-hmm. It's not the yeah. one that Batman's currently driving, because that's a convertible. But uh, you know, it's still there, just like Brian Boland pulled it up in uh, the Killing Joke. Like that Batmobile, just it sticks around. It's got sentimental value. It's got the bubble and a shout out, as you said earlier too, of like the covers. Oh yeah, I think I think I love. So I'll always remember four thirty six. I think I love four thirty seven. 
there's a lot in that 437 uh that 437 cover of batman overlooking with wayne manor behind it but then here's dick grayson the aerialist you know and then nope he's robin then it's the bat cave with the light shining through and then he's got on his bat monitor you know there's the riddler there's catwoman like there's just a lot in in this cover and i just i love that cover and there's the kenner superpowers batmobile just tucked Mm -hmm. behind the upc code which i dug because i had that toy as a kid i still have it. it's in the garage somewhere uh, (laughs) they've got a little more worse for wear than the one in the cover though (laughs) They got the Joker card hanging, but he left out the T-Rex and the penny. But okay. Hey, he got one in there. I'll take That's it. Right. I so. think for me, if I had to pick one, it would be 438, though. I think it, it stands out. When you look at all four together, there's a very similar color palette. And while I like the way the pages for the ledger spread out and the bat signal shines on Nightwing. Um, but I mean, if you look at, you know, chapters one two and four they're all very dark but mm-hmm. but part three it's just that bright blue of batman's cape taking over the image and you know as batman and robin go into action there's some i don't know what is going on in this cover because there's presumably zuko shouting up at the heavens at batman and robin with a stogie in one hand and his journal in the other but then there's like all these guys parachuting with guns yeah. behind batman and robin like what is going on? I don't know what's going on there, but it's, it's very awful. busy. It's like they were like, let's just make sure we throw in all the elements of the story right here on this cover. But yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool too. I want to say once upon a time, they released like a book of like George Perez's covers for this. I don't know if it was a book or a magazine or, or like, it's just like a small portfolio of of these covers um but not just for this but for a lonely place of dying as well and my my overall favorite out of all of those is 440 with batman and the crosshairs uh sitting on the gargoyle that one to me is my favorite of the whole bunch nice 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 so if closing thoughts on batman year three if you haven't read Batman Year Three, you're and you're a Batman fan, you're you're doing yourself a disservice. It's so it's so integral to this iconic moment in Batman's history, and not not just comic history, but as as a creative being. I mean, everything was was hitting the year the story came out between. You know, Bray Fogel on Detective, Aparo was usually doing Batman with the exception of this story. You had Michael Keaton on the big screen. There were Batman figures and magazines and, and soundtracks. And like I said earlier, shirts and posters. And it was just this one unique time in history that we've come close to recapturing. Um, but to have that all happen at, at such a young age for me, I mean, it it was monumental. And, and this story is a key factor in that it's so rooted, but it's like this lost missing chapter of Batman history. Cause it's, it's Batman year three, mm-hmm. but it's also like this great connective piece between the death in the family and the lonely place of dying. And, and someone had pointed out on Twitter and I forget who I um, apologize uh, that I don't remember your, 
your Twitter handle, but like they really need like a a compilation to collect all those three stories into one big volume. Because it really is telling this like night like they did with Nightfall where they did nine volumes recently for the twenty fifth anniversary. Like this needs that kind of a re release to see this this grand saga take place. Yep. Totally agree. Totally agree. As I've mentioned a few times, the iconic imagery to me of the cover of Batman four thirty six, that's such a great cover. It's Batman Year Three has nostalgia in its, you know, to in its hand for me. I'll always remember as some of the first it was amongst the first comics that I ever had. It's not a flashy rogues villain story, but it doesn't need to be. And it carries a lot of weight. It's a really good Robin origin story, but then also deals, you know, dealing with Batman's struggles and trying to bring him back down to Back down to, I was going to say humanity, but that's not exactly right either. But he's just kind of so far gone on that solo track. And it's good to bring it. It's reeling him in for Lonely Place of Dying, where he will get back to accepting allies. And I just think it's, yeah, there's there's a great trilogy here of Death in the Family, Year 3, and A Lonely Place of Dying. And I think they should just deluxe edition it absolute edition i don't know something and just call it the robin trilogy uh and it would be it would be marvelous so year three is definitely it's easily accessible too the issues are on dc universe if you don't have dc universe you can try it for a week for free like read these and then that's all you need i don't know what why why you can while we still have yeah, DC why, universe. oh my gosh it's not going away <laughs> i i mean i know jim lee said like no, it's not going away, but it's not going away, but it's changing, and we don't know what that change is yet. On you know August seventeenth, twenty twenty. So it's I, I hope it sticks around because I I love it. Yep, it is a it's a bargain. It's a bargain. If it becomes comics only, that's a okay and fine with me. I think that they should maybe drop the price just a little bit. We're recording this before Fandom. Maybe they're going to make an announcement yeah. at Fandom and make it cheaper, but they should drop the price just a little. Because to me, it just, if you're going to, if you're announcing a price and to subscribers, and this is all the content you're giving, and now you're taking away that content, I think you need to lower the price a little. You yeah. know, it's like, no, you need to pay the same, but we're not giving you the content that you were before at that price. Like, eh, just a, a buck or two. That's all it takes. But regardless, I mean, even if it still stays at the price it's at, it's a, it's a steal. I mean, unlimited comics for $8 a month. Oh, oh my gosh. That's a yeah. So anyways, Javi, do you have anything that you would like to like to plug? Uh, no, just head over to batmanonfilm.com, batman-on-film.com. Uh, you can check out my reviews for The Batman's Grave and Batman The Adventures Continue, which is kind of dovetailing off this a little bit because we're talking about the death of Jason Todd right now, the presumed death of Jason Todd in the animated universe. Um, they've done a really uh, creative way of shoehorning in uh, Jason to this reality because when they when they changed uh, looks to the new Batman Adventures, and they brought on Tim Drake. Tim had a lot of very Jason Todd qualities 
uh, even a father who was a criminal. So they kind of already stolen Jason's origin for this version of Tim. So now uh, Bernet and Dean have had to kind of cook up a new Jason who would still be the post-crisis Jason, but have an origin and a reason for him to be the Red Hood that would make sense. So it's been the last two uh, chapters, nine and 10, have been just perfection to me. I've really enjoyed them. Excellent. Excellent. And can do you want anybody to follow you on Twitter? Yeah, on Twitter, you can follow me at Javi True, J-A-V-I-T-R-U. And if you want to head over to Instagram, I am the Bond is not enough. So I'm a big James <laughs> Bond fan, but I'm not just a James Bond fan. It's not enough for me. So I, I'll share... <laughs> pictures of like my Batman collection and um, maybe a little bit of Spider-Man or some hot toys stuff. You never know what's going to show up over there. So you can follow me in either of those two places. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Javi, for being on. This was a joy to revisit the story. Yeah. Thank Uh, you for having me, man. This was a blast. Yes, absolutely. You'll be invited to come on in the future uh, I'll cut this out if you're like, no, I don't want to be on again. Oh, no, I got like five more ideas <laughs> books I want to talk about. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll, we'll sign you up. You've got five was... more appearances coming. Sweet. Yes, excellent. So as I said, it is the top of the show. Follow the Batman Book Club on Twitter at the Batman BC. You can also follow me on Twitter at Lauer underscore Ryan. Lauer, it's spelled like lower. Feel free to write into the Batman Book Club for questions, comments, concerns, anything Batman related at all at thebatmanbc at gmail.com. And lastly, please, if you would ever be so kind, rate and review the show. The link is in the description and it will help spread that word. And so for Javi, I am Ryan. Thank you for listening to Batman Year 3. And until next time, read more Batman.